We're going to continue our sermon series through the book of Exodus. Uh, So we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20 uh, today, this morning. Thank you for standing as we seek to have respect as we read God's Word. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, we're going to read the first 11 verses together. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We're going to come back and unpack that. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You may be seated. This is part seven of our sermon series called Exodus where we're unpacking kind of that story arc of the Israelites and their release from bondage in Egypt and then return to the promised land. I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago. There's actually a bigger picture here, which is this sermon series is going to carry us kind of right up to the edge of the promised land. Uh, Spoiler alert, it takes them a little while to get there. Should have taken just a few weeks. Instead, it took, anybody remember how long? Yes, 40 years. Uh, So we're going to unpack them, kind of going all the way up to the edge of the promised land. And then next year, we're going to do a separate sermon series uh, where we we, uh, examine what it took for them to actually take the promised land, to enter into the promised land. So that's the story arc that we're unpacking. This is part seven, as I said. Uh, Our sermon title today, which is on your note sheet, which hopefully you either got one or you at least had a chance to get one. Um, If not, you can, I guess, just wander along with us. And (laughs) Most of what's on your notes will be up here on the screen. Um, Our sermon title, as you see at the top of your notes, is Leaving Uncertainty Through Covenant. So actually, we leave uncertainty in a place of uncertainty, especially, listen up, this is important, especially when it comes to relational uncertainty. How how do we relate to each other? What does this uh, relationship look like? Have you ever heard of this? I'm sure some of you have, that you have one of those define the relationship conversations. Anybody ever heard that? Like three of you are shaking your heads. Sometimes if you're in maybe college or beyond and you're kind of figuring it out, like, what does this relationship look like? You have to have a conversation to define the boundaries of the relationship. This is God doing that to the Israelites. And as you're going to see, you may have already picked up on this, as you're going to see, there is a lot of marital language in these. Uh, Clearly, I think most of you know this, but maybe not everybody picked up on it. We're actually talking about the Ten Commandments. So we've launched off into that. Uh, what we just read are what, what are considered the first four commandments, so we're going to unpack these four this week, 
and then we'll unpack the last six uh, later. So uh, we leave uncertainty through covenant, especially relational uncertainty. Covenant, relationally, is the opposite of uncertainty. Covenant is commitment. Covenant, and especially the commitment that God has for us, truly is an unconditional covenant. That it's un, you know, independent of how we act. And, and y'all listen up. If we're going to talk about the Ten Commandments, this is going to be one of the things that we need to nail, which means I need to say it clearly. That's my job. And your job is to listen clearly. Right? These are not conditions on whether or not God's going to love us. That is not what was intended. And what we're about to see is that's not actually what he said. He's still defining the parameters of the relationship. And a loving relationship with God is built on covenantal expectations. That our behavior is separate from whether or not we're loved. Or to reverse that order, whether or not we're loved is separate from our behavior. That God actually loved the Israelites. And, and especially if you've been a part of any of these sermons, and many of you have been here for maybe more than one of these uh, the past few weeks, You've already picked up on this theme. Have you figured out yet that the Israelites, there, there are some times where you see the ways they're acting and you think, I don't know if I would have saved them. Anybody else in the room feel this way? Like all that God did for them and you're, you're kind of, they're, man, they're, they complain a lot. They doubt a lot. They're often not sure. And of course it's easy, and I, I say this often because it's one of the themes that I see, especially in our culture, we have what's called chronological snobbery, which is that we're smarter than everybody who came before us. It's a dangerous disease in our culture, primarily because we don't talk about it enough. It's easy for us to sit here now, 3,500 years later, and say that they should have done things differently. But man, I hope I would have. And yet, maybe my life proves out that I'm not much better than they are. So if there's hope for God to love them... Maybe there's hope for God to love me too. In fact, that's not a maybe, is it? God does love me. Thank you for encouraging me. God does love me in spite of my behavior. And just let that wash out. Because it's not just me. It's all of us. Just let the good news ripple out, right? For all of us, God loves us often in spite of our behavior. And so here's the, here's the, the story arc, this point of the story arc that I want you to catch, because I think this is just a, a fascinating idea. Last week, we did this, what I thought, if i got to be honest with you, I thought it was a really dry sermon on like Moses and Jethro. I don't know how else to unpack it. It's kind of a dry subject. It, I told you last week in the intro, I'm not questioning the veracity of Scripture or the inspiration of Scripture, but I do scratch my head on some things. And while I think it's a fascinating story, I kind of wondered, like, why, like, why was it in there? And especially right there, because the Israelites are about to come to Mount Sinai. This is a seminal moment in the history of their race. And that's where we find ourselves. So yeah, this is a high point. This is a high point for all of us, especially just kind of, you know, we're peeking over the edge of what they were experiencing, of what Moses had led, the place that Moses had led them to, and what their experience was. And so I want you to, to for just a second, especially if you're like a church person, which is a lot of you, 
right? You're church people. So like me, you've been in church for years and years and years. And so there's, maybe you don't even realize all the things you just know, right? You just automatically, some of you already, you're automatically placing in your mind because you know the narrative of the Old Testament and you know the narrative of the nation of Israel. And so you kind of know what's coming. And sometimes when we feel that way, it's easy for us to skip over, right? So for just a second, can you pretend with me that you don't know the story, that you're not familiar with it, and imagine what it must be like, not just to hear God's words, which they had heard. They had gotten messages from Moses and from Aaron and from others, right? They had heard God's words, but they had not heard God's voice. This is where they hear it. What must it have been like? I want you to try to imagine with me what do you think the experience would have been like? This is one of those times where I wish we could just hit pause on the stopwatch for how long the sermon's going and we could just take a microphone and go around the room. Like, you tell me what do you think it must have been like. And you unpack it for me. I'll give everybody three sentences. Just tell me what you think, right? And we pass the microphone right. It would be fascinating to hear. Because here's what I think. How I would answer that question and how you would answer that question actually tells us a lot about what we believe about God. What would it have been like to hear God's voice? How do you think of God? Maybe to dial in the question just a little bit more, how do you think of the Ten Commandments? Are they forbidding? Is God angry? Is God limiting us? It's easy to think that way, right? And again, we all have our story, and I don't know what your story looks like. I grew up in a, in a loving Christian home, but the larger context, kind of the faith context that we were in, especially the particular kind of church tradition that we were in, was very what I would call legalistic. And so I grew up thinking that God was angry with us. He was just waiting for us to step out of line so that he could nail us. Anybody else in here feel that way right now? See, I got you, didn't I? You didn't know I was going to say that. You thought I was going to say before. We still recover from the residue of that, don't we? What would it have been like? How do we think of the Ten Commandments? How do we think of God's voice? So the Ten Commandments are actually freeing for optimal human living. Not Christian living. So here's the thing. If you're not a believer, which might be you, you're not a church person, and maybe you've, this is your first Sunday, or maybe you've been here several weeks, but you still wouldn't classify yourself as a church person. This is for you too, because here's what I think. The Ten Commandments don't tell us what optimal Christian living looks like. They actually tell us what optimal human flourishing looks like. Here's what I think, and I got this, and I, I, I apologize ahead of time. I realized this morning when I was going back through my sermon that in all the commentaries that I read in preparation, this is not my idea, but I can't cite it because <laughs> I didn't write down where I read it. And I read quite a few commentaries. But just think about this idea. Forget about who's, you know, responsible for it because there's nothing new under the sun anyway. 
God's law, which is what we call this, the Ten Commandments, God's law reflects his character. It is, you could make the argument, his likeness expressed in precepts. These are precepts that when you stack them one on top of the other, you understand, you get a better picture for who God is. Or we could use the language, what is his likeness? It is his likeness expressed in his precepts. Check this out. This is where I think it's a, you turn the corner, and I think it's a really interesting corner that you turn. So if the Ten Commandments, it could be argued, and I think it could, that the Ten Commandments are God's likeness expressed in precepts, this is so cool. Then when you and I or anyone obey the Ten Commandments with, a, with, with the right heart, with the right attitude towards God, we are actually triggering His image, His likeness that is already in us. We're awakening something that lives inside of us because, and we, we unpack this, I guess it's been a little while ago now. I always think of everything as like two weeks ago, right? But I guess it's been more like two years ago. We did a sermon series on what it means to be made in the image of God. You guys remember that? Some of you do. We were actually not even meeting at this address at the time. What, is it, what does it mean to have the Imago Day? And even though the sin in our life mars the image of God, the truth is that every human that you lock eyes with has been made in the image of God. This is why racism is wrong. Because independent of the color of your skin or your background or your ethnicity, doesn't matter where you went to like school or how much money you earn, everyone that you lock eyes with deserves dignity because they're made in the image of God. The, the Imago Dei is inside of you, no, no matter what you believe about God. And when we begin to obey with the right heart, when we begin to obey the Ten Commandments, we're actually awakening the image of God that lives inside of us. We're realigning ourselves. It triggers the image of God, which is our real nature. In other words, we live the truly human life when we follow God's law. We are returning to his original design and his original intent. So our goal this morning, my goal this morning, and you're kind of along for the ride, whether you want to be or not, uh, my goal for this morning is to help us kind of reframe the lens that we view the Ten Commandments through from rules to relationship. Because that was the original intent of the Ten Commandments. Here's what I think. We set in Christian circles, we set the law against the gospel. Right? This is what we do. We think the law is that when people give us rules or, or, or commandments or how, whatever language you want to use, when someone's telling me what to do, that's the law, and the gospel sets me free, I don't know how you'd fill in the blank. To do whatever I want to do, maybe? I don't, I, that's not the right answer, but I don't know how you would answer it. And I understand you could point to some passages in Scripture that you think support that. I'm not saying they do. I'm saying you think they do. But along the way, we miss that the law was actually given. This law was given in the context of loving acceptance. That they had already messed up. God had already forgiven them. God had already shown himself strong on their behalf. 
before this came up. In fact, literally what God says to them before He starts pouring out these commandments, literally what God says to them is, I'm your God. I'm here to supply your needs. That's what he meant by using the term Yahweh. By the way, that's what he says in these first couple of verses here. He revisits what he said to Moses in the burning bush. I'm Yahweh. This was a new concept for them. I am. I am. Right? Like not Popeye saying it, but (laughs) I am. I am. I'm here to supply all of your needs. They've already run the thing off in the ditch a few times, and God's still saying, I'm here to supply all of your needs. I've protected you, and I've set you free. Now that all of that's done, let's talk about how we're going to interact. I think if you understand anything at all about healthy relationships, especially healthy like marital relationships, whether you're married or not, if you at least understand the concept, I don't think it's that much of a mental stretch to believe that even in a healthy marriage, we're going to kind of have some boundaries and some guidelines on the way that we treat each other. In other words, in healthy marriages, we don't necessarily say, no matter how you act towards me, I'm never going to question it. Yeah. If your marriage starts off healthy and you take that approach, guess what? It's not going to stay. I don't know how long it's going to, I'm just telling you as a pastor who counsels people, that road leads to the ditch. Maybe in a mile, maybe in 10 miles, but it just doesn't end well. We're going to have to be intentional about how we interact with each other. So chapters 19 and 20 kind of go together. We're going to unpack this. We're not going to go verse by verse, but we're going to make some observations. We are going to go commandment by commandment this morning. Uh, We're going to make some observations, okay? Chapters 19 and 20 uh, kind of go together, and they're a little bit difficult to discern. What's the order of events here? And and I'll tell you why I say that, because you see Moses going up on the mountain by himself. He explicitly is by himself talking with God. And then it says that he comes back down, and now here's God giving these commandments, and and it's evident from from chapter 20 uh, that Moses has come back down off the mountain, and God's speaking to everyone. In fact, I find it fascinating if you read the next few verses in chapter 20 from where we stopped, you'll find the people saying, telling Moses, don't let God talk directly to us anymore, like we are terrified. Let him tell you, and then you come tell us, right? Because they're hearing God's voice. So here's the thing. I love this because somebody, uh, I was having a conversation with someone just a few minutes ago, and they repeated this back to me, how we've been talking in this series about how God calls you from something but to something, right? God calls you from something, but he also calls you to something. So ultimately, we want to figure out not just what is God releasing me from, but what is God calling me to, right? Well, I see some callings here. So that's the framework that we're going to use to talk about these Ten Commandments, that God's calling us to some things. So go back with me to verse 3. This was the first commandment. God calls us to consecration. In fact, let's just, I'm not supposed to do this, and we're going to go into overtime, but let's just read all of the first few verses, right? God spoke all these words saying, listen, hear the gospel. Hear God's love, because he's not, we don't have commandments till verse 3. Look at verse 2. I am the Lord your God. I am that I am, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I've already proven that I love you. I've already proven that you belong to me. Here we go. Verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. God calls us to consecration. 
This is the foundational commandment. Everything else is built on this. God calls us to consecration. You shall have no other gods before me. It's foundational, this is in your notes, in the sense that Yahweh is the only God, and He's speaking to the people who belong only to Him. Now, you may have an argument in your mind where you say, wait a second, Tim, earlier you said that all of humanity has the image of God in them triggered when they obey the Ten Commandments with the right heart. Absolutely true. This was God's original intent, God's original design for humanity. But he, this was not everyone's story. And everyone wasn't the audience here. He's talking to a group of people that have already, we, we're already in this thing together, right? If this were a movie, we're already well into the movie and we're, it's clear that we're joined at the hip here. And what God's saying is we're going to be joined at the hip, right? This goes back to the covenant he made with Abraham. He's speaking to his people, to people who belong only to him. I find it interesting, by the way, and this is just minor, so I'm just going to give you permission for the next few sentences that I say. If you don't care for it or if you get confused by it, just flush it, right? Just get rid of it. The preposition, if you could go back one slide. Thank you. You shall have no other gods. What does it say? Before me. I, I just find this type of thing fascinating. That's actually not priority. When it says no other gods before me, that's not a priority. That's not what God's saying. He's, he's not saying there, there should be no other gods ahead of me. Because it doesn't take much logic to figure out that if he was saying that, that he could be saying, you can have a lot of gods as long as I'm the top one. That's not what he's saying. This is not priority, it's actually a preposition. You guys ready for a grammar review? You didn't know you were going to have to do this coming to church, did you? Do you remember? The, so this was the picture that I remember going back, I don't even know, maybe middle school, maybe elementary school. But I remember that prepositions could be described by what you could do to a box. Do you remember this? Has anybody ever heard this besides me? So in other words, I can be in the box. I can be on the box, I could be in front of the box, I could be behind the box, I could be around the box. Those, all of those words are prepositions. They're really directional. And that's what God's saying here. I think, I may be wrong, you can throw this out if you don't like it. Or we could have coffee and argue about it. I think that's fun too. Because maybe I'm wrong. But I think faithfully, in a way, God's saying, I don't want other gods anywhere near me. And I channel some people that I've heard in my past who would say something like, get that out of my face. I don't want anywhere near me. Don't bring that close to me. Well, now we have a prepositional problem because God's everywhere. <laughs> so if we're not supposed to have other gods anywhere near God, well, God is everywhere. If I make my bed in hell, he's there. If I ascend to the heavens, he's there. So that means we don't get to have any other gods, right? <laughs> That's the foundational idea here. This, this, those last two words are really important words. No other gods before me. It's preposition. Do you remember that nine, about 900 years later, Israel had fallen, and there were captives that were taken to Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar, to these three little Jewish boys, tried to force them to have other gods. Do you remember that story? Right? There was even a VeggieTales episode about it. <laughs> right? 
What, was it Dave and the Giant Pickle? I think it was Dave and the Giant Pickle. Uh, no? Chocolate Bunny. Was there a Giant Pickle? Yeah, okay, different story. I don't know. I've lost control. That's it. Uh, Daniel 3. This is their response. When Nebuchadnezzar, who has all the power, and these three Hebrew children, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, right? That was their names. Check it out. Here they are. They have no power. He has all the power. He tries to get them to bow. They say, we're not going to bow. He says, I'm going to throw you in the fire. They say, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... <laughs> This is so good. Let the record show. Be it known to you. Thunder it from the mountains far and wide. Let the people all say together, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image. Do you, do you think this first commandment might have been echoing in their minds when they said that? This is not for sale. It's too foundational. This is not for sale. Now, the danger is that you and I might think that we're in the clear because we haven't carved anything out of wood and set it up in our garage. I hope you haven't done that. <laughs> if so, we definitely need to have coffee this week, right? We haven't made out of, like, do you, and do you remember when Moses comes down off Mount Sinai, they had actually made something? Yeah, I'm telling you. Sometimes I think the only people who are worse at following God than them is us or me. Good night. Why would God continue to love us the way that he does? I don't know, but he does. And he seems to be pretty long-suffering and patient with us. Praise God. What are our other gods? Are you guys ready for this? Everybody sitting down? Money? How do you keep score? Who's more successful? I was reminded this morning, listening to a podcast while I was feeding my pigs. I was listening to a podcast. It's in Matthew 19 where Jesus says, anything that you've forsaken for the kingdom of God will re be returned to you. A hundredfold in eternity. You know why he said that? Because people regularly lay things down for the sake of the kingdom of God. Money. Power. Achievement. I want to ask you not what your gods are or not what your idols are. I want to ask how you keep score, American. Is it power? Is it influence? Is it who has the nicest stuff? Is it, is it wisdom? Or intelligence? Is it education? Is it success, however you define that? We all define it a little differently. Is it beauty? Who's the skinniest? Who's the strongest? Who spends the most time in the gym? Come on. Is it sex? Is it influence? 
we might be in more danger than we think. God calls us to consecration. In other words, the, the question we're trying to answer is, who is God? Here's the next question. God calls us not just to consecration, God also calls us to exclusivity. Which is not questioning who is God, because he told us, now he's going to begin to answer, and really for the rest of these commandments, now that we know who he is, how do we worship him? What does it look like? God calls us to exclusivity, which is the reason why if you're just reading the Ten Commandments, you may have a hard time seeing where the first commandment ends and the second commandment begins. And sometimes you can even see commentators going, well, we're, we kind of have a hard time differentiating between these two. I think the first one's the foundation and the second one and all the others build on it, right? God calls us to exclusivity. Why? Listen, because for four centuries... They had watched Egyptians worship animals and celestial bodies and even Pharaoh himself. And God looks at his people and says, that's not good enough. That's not what we're going to do. You're not going to worship something else in the place of me. We're not going to have any poor substitutes. And believe me, whatever you come up with is a poor substitute for the God of the universe. So just don't try no poor substitutes here. Don't worship his creation. Suddenly we got personal, didn't we? Don't worship his creation. Don't worship the way that he blesses you. That's not the most important thing. Why? Because he says, I'm a jealous God. I'm a jealous God. Verses 4 through 6, he unpacks this. And it's really the idea, listen, of zeal and jealousy wrapped up in one. And every time that this, this uh, term is used in the Old Testament, it's in the context of marriage. Did you know that sometimes there's a jealousy that can be healthy? No, you didn't know that, right? Okay, when we're finished, walk down the hall and make a pass at my wife. <laughs> That's literally what this is talking about. Do you think that's healthy? I guess we'll find out, won't we? <laughs> I think you can understand that there's a context where that might not necessarily be unhealthy. That we are exclusive to each other. Right? This is what God's saying to us. This is not, this is in your notes, this is not unhealthy or erratic jealousy. This is so good. This is a fierce desire to protect something. What does it say? Precious. Everybody look at me. You know what the something precious is? It's you. It's you. This is the gospel in the Old Testament. God's saying, you're mine. And we're exclusive to each other. And I paid a high price and you didn't deserve it, but I had paid a high price anyway. And he already had paid a high price, but we were ascending the mountain towards the highest price, weren't we? Think about the Old Testament narrative. We're ascending the mountain towards the highest price, which is Calvary. It's the cross. And the cross is how God looks at us and says, we are exclusive. And you're the most important person to me. And I paid this price and you didn't deserve it, right? This is grace. You didn't do anything to earn it. You didn't do anything to deserve it. But you get it anyway. So yeah, you better believe I'm going to be jealous for you. There's going to be a zeal in the way that I interact with you. And I want that zeal returned. 
What's the takeaway? We got to move on. Listen, gosh, this is a whole other sermon. I would just caution you, and I would love to have a cup of coffee about this, by the way, because I think it's a fascinating discussion. I would just caution you to be very careful trying to sanctify your ambition. I think we put God in the passenger seat as we're in our ambition. We're on the way to whatever it is we're trying to accomplish. And we think, well, God would want me to have that. Think about all the people I could bless if I just had that much money. Come on. I'm not saying it's wrong to have money or stuff or status or whatever. But I think human ambition is a really dangerous thing. And I'm not saying you can't have it. I'm just saying you need to be really, really careful. We take, a, we take a human ambition and we add God on like an option when we're buying a car. Yeah, I'll take the power windows. I'll just pay a little extra. Just put them right on the top, right? God's not an add-on to your ambition. He's not the passenger in the car. He's the destination. That's where we're supposed to be headed. That's not just for me because I'm in full-time vocational ministry. This is all of us. This is how exclusivity works. Verse 7, we keep reading. God has called us to consecration. God has called us to exclusivity. Now God's calling us to reverence. God's calling us to reverence. Verse 7, what does verse 7 say? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. What in the world does that mean? Well, reverence really was the idea of not using his name flippantly or pointlessly. For the Jews, they, they, and we've talked about this. In fact, this was just a few weeks ago we talked about this. They really held names very highly because they believed that your name really represents your essence. So if I curse your name, I'm cursing who you are. And however I treat your name shows what I believe about who you are. Thoughtlessly invoking God's name was to proclaim that his being, his nature, and his essence are worthless. How do you translate that into modern day America, which is where you and I live? It's the opposite of saying, well, God's not really that big a deal. He's not really that special. That's irreverence. By design, like by, by definition, that's irreverence. That God is the center of this thing. This is reverence. God is the center of this thing, and we will revolve around Him. And we don't come to Him as we please. As we're growing in our spiritual discernment, as we're growing in our love for God, our increasing desire is to come to Him as He wishes and not as we wish. Hebrews 10, this is so good. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Just real quick, how many of you feel like the, the kingdoms that you're in get shaken all the time? Yep. It's okay to admit it, right? What a great reminder. Let us be grateful that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, in other words, because of that, for that reason, and thus, let us offer to God what kind of worship? Hey, you think maybe we should ask what God wants? 
What do you think, Jaden? You think that's a pretty good idea? Yeah. And like, I'm not saying he's going to zap us with lightning if we don't, but if we really do love him, wouldn't we ask that question? What do you want, not here's what I want you to have? That's what real love looks like, right? Let us offer to God acceptable worship with what? Come on. Is it, is it up there? Yeah. Reverence and awe. When's the last time you felt reverence and awe? Because you were in God's presence. You just get a little jittery. You just sit and it's not your coffee. (laughs) That's a different kind of jittery. You just sit up a little straighter. You just go, hey, this is is serious business. To, To use an Old Testament phrase, you think to yourself, this is holy ground. Let's take this seriously. For our God is a consuming fire. I think we should take him seriously. Last one, verses 8 through 11. We don't have time to read them all. God calls us to rest. This is Sabbath. And I'm going to point you right now. In May and June of 2022, we did an entire sermon series called The Rhythm of Rest. And I don't know if you were here for it or not. But if not, I would encourage you, if you want to unpack this a little bit more, go back there because that entire series was about Sabbath. That was the point of the series. What does Sabbath look like? I will tell you this. I think it's one of the deepest mines of treasure for truth and information in the Old Testament that we don't think about. It is literally God setting a rhythm for how we're supposed to conduct ourselves. And he went first. Look at the story of creation. God didn't rest because he was tired. You know how I know that? Here's your theological test. Because God doesn't get tired. He rested because he was, he was setting a rhythm. Y'all listen, especially all of you type A's. The purpose of life isn't just to get things done. But I think that it is, Tim. Right? I know. I fall into that too. But the purpose of life is to be. And that's what Sabbath is. We're just going to be, we're going to create some room to be together. By the way, this is one of the reasons that we're so bad at relationships in America, because we don't create room in our schedules. You know? Still, sometimes I go to lunch with people and they're like, what? why are we here? And I say, because I wanted to be friends. You don't have to have a reason. Welcome to Sabbath. We're just friends. Friends spend time together. We're all too busy for that now, right? This is by far the longest and most detailed commandment. It involves physical rest, because he says you shall not do any work. It involves spiritual renewal, because it says that God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And it involves relational connection, or more specifically, relational reconnection with your sons and your daughters, right? You remember, this is the language that's used. Nobody works, not just you don't work, nobody works. Because we all need to have the same day every week where we're just being. That gives us a chance to be together. Walking with God is about joining him in his work and joining him in his rest. And I would just remind you of this. You and I think so much, I hope you do, about eternity and what's coming for us as believers. 
What do we say when someone passes away? We say they entered into eternal rest. Y'all listen. Eternity for us is a Sabbath. It's a Sabbath that never ends. Doesn't mean we're not going to do things and be productive, but that's not the goal. That's not the reason for why we exist in eternity. It's to be in eternal relationship with each other, with the God of the universe. So Psalm 119, verse 45, as we wind this down, Eric's coming back up. He's gonna, we're going to sing together, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together. I love, love, love this, this verse, right? This is so good. And, and I don't know how much you know about Psalm 119. Some of you are very familiar with it. Some of you aren't. So Psalm 119, there's 176 verses in Psalm 119. And almost every single verse tells us something about God's law, God's truth, God's ways, God's precepts. And it's fascinating to me how, ver- how varied these 176 verses are, and yet they're all talking about the same thing. It's almost like somebody dared God, how many different ways can you say the same thing? He said, well, I can come up with at least 176 ways to say it. Isn't that fantastic? And it's all about God's Word. That's why it's so fascinating. But I'll say this, this is what it says, I shall walk in a wide place for I have sought your precepts. I lo- one of the games I love to play in my, in my devotion and reading as I work my way through scripture, every time I come, come to Psalm 119, in every verse I try to pick out, okay, where's God's word? God's word is in almost every verse. Where, where is it? Well, here it's precepts. You know what I find fascinating about it? Is that for all of those 176 verses, this is one of the most precise and exact and encompassing words to describe God's Word, His precepts. I shall walk in a wide place. Listen, this is so good. That's freedom. I shall walk in a wide, I shall walk in freedom. In fact, if you read a different version of the Bible, you'll see that it says something to the effect of freedom, right? I shall walk in a wide place for I have sought your precepts. In other words, the more I dig into your word, just just see if you believe this. God, the more I dig into your word and apply it to every detail of my life and the way that I live my life day by day, hour by hour, God, the better I get at honoring your word in my life, the wider the place I get to walk in the more freedom I get to experience. You say, Tim, why is that? I think it's because the Imago Dei inside of you is being returned to its original design. This is quite literally the way God made you to function. Which is why when you and I sin and we choose rebellion and selfishness, it causes pain for us and for those around us. It never ends well. Why? Because we're going against the design that we were originally made for. This is a path to freedom. And the God who is jealous for you, because he paid such a high price for you, and because he has shown himself to be exclusively committed to you, and he wants you to do the same back to him. What an incredibly freeing thing for him to tell us the best ways for us to interact with him and to relate to him. Let's pray together. God, we just ask you in in humility that you would set us free uh, to pursue your precepts more closely, that you would 
move our hearts and change our hearts and, and really energize our hearts towards being more obedient to you and to who you are. Um, God, I, I don't know how to convince everyone. I don't think I'm even able to convince everyone here, or everyone who's watching online, of how good your heart is for us, even in the midst of these commandments. That this really is a path for, to life for us. That you're calling us to something new. You're calling us to something great, God. So for us, in the areas where we have hobbies or ambitions that come between us and you, help us to see those things for what they really are and help us to understand that it's not necessarily about quitting those things, but it is about finding the right place for them. That God, for, at different times and in different ways, even in my life, I know there are situations where things come between you and I and it's really just as much about me reframing how I'm living my life and the choices that I'm making, whether it's the, what I spend my money on or what I spend my time on. God, ultimately the goal of all this is that I would belong to you in a more real and more perfect way. That I would understand how much you love me and how much you're calling me to have no one else over and above you, nothing else over and above you. So give us the faith to trust you. Give us the courage to take action and move forward with this in Jesus' name. Amen.